0: good morning, church. It's good to be with you again uh, this morning. It's good to be before you uh, preaching and uh, executing uh, this privilege of this office. Uh, Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three. Well this week I was drawn, uh, my attention was drawn by uh, Tim Challies to a blog article titled What if God doesn't speak to me? And the beginning of the article told of an account that, per- that I personally have experienced time and time again or had personally experienced time and time again throughout probably my late teens and early adulthood in uh, my Christian walk. And that is, whether by the encouragement of Bible teachers, camp counselors, written devotionals, and, and the like, I was to go uh, somewhere and listen for God's voice, or sense it, or really conjure it up in some way. And her account read like many of mine. It, she wrote, I had just read a devotional that believers should regularly hear from God. Prayer isn't meant to be a lecture, but a conversation. To participate, we need to listen. I finally ended my prayer with, I'm ready to listen. God, speak to me. I walked in silence. I stood in silence. I waited and listened, but he never spoke. I was later told that this may take some time. I had to wait and be patient. God wanted to see that I was truly listening so he could freely speak. So I continued waiting in silence, praying and waiting, but God never spoke to me. It seemed everyone else heard from God. Youth leaders, friends, conference speakers, pastors, and older girls I looked up to. Her account, not mine. They had an intimate relationship with him. He was always nudging and whispering to them and filling them more with his spirit. You can imagine how discouraging that is. Well, you may have had similar experiences as uh, this blogger and myself. Well, this morning, in the first few verses of Ephesians 3, We see through Paul's experience and his call to be an apostle to the Gentiles, an encouragement to look at the final revelation of God in Jesus Christ, to see the sufficiency of Scripture and its also necessity. In the end, we'll uh, take note and observe and apply the section and see how it encourages, encourages us to see what Scripture says of itself, and supremely, what it says of Christ, the Word incarnate. Well, the last time, or I, I was before you. We were in chapter two, and so I find it helpful as we enter into a new chapter, a a a, a similar um, a transition here, trans- transitory chapter in Ephesians, to take account of where we've been. In chapter 1, we saw Paul opened his letters to the Ephesians with a treatise on Trinitarian operations in salvation. In chapter 2, we heard of how the power of the gospel is displayed in the triune God's new creation work and bringing dead sinners to life in Christ. And how God's divine work of reconciling dead sinners to Himself also produces the basis of reconciliation between fellow believers. And that the Jewish Christian would see the good news that God was fulfilling His promise to Israel through Christ and the inclusion of the Gentiles. So if you've been keeping track with me as to the thematic elements of Ephesians... We've made it through the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ in chapter 1. And we find ourselves in the earthly witness to the exalted Christ in chapters 2 and 3. Eventually, we'll make it to chapters 4 and 5 and see the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. And then in chapter 6, the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ. So as we approach God's word This morning, let us give it our attention as I read for us Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be uh, preaching on 1 through 7, but reading through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it, is now, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration and of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would attend your word by your spirit, that we may be richly Blessed by this means of grace. To the encouragement of our souls. For your glory alone we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well as we look at Ephesians 1 through 13 as a whole. It can be divided into three categories or themes. Now they intersperse. Uh, a bit throughout it but you can pick up that throughout this section you can find context content and consequence we find that Paul is expressing to to them the context of his prayer in verse 14 eventually what we have essentially is a, is a digress is a digression from verses 1 through 13 he digresses into this uh, idea of con- context, content and consequence, as it relates to ultimately, that in verse 14, "For this reason I bow my knees before the Father." And then he prays to them in su- or prays for them in such a way that is directly connected to what he said at the end of chapter two. But he, he feels it necessary to digress here for a short moment to provide them the context of his prayer, the content of why he would be praying, and then ultimately the consequence. What, what is it leading to? So in verses 1 through 7 is largely context. We obviously have uh, in the uh later section of one through seven uh, a clear explanation of the content and for that we'll leave i'll leave to the next time i'm before you and this morning we'll address the context that leads up to paul's prayer in verse 14. we'll address this in three ways we'll address it in the historical context in verses one through two the biblical, biblical, biblical theological context of verses 3 and the first part of 5. And then we'll end with the operative context in verse at the end of verse 5 and verse 7. So if we begin this morning where Paul does in chapter 3 with the historical context of his digression of this prayer. We see he begins with for this reason. For this reason, in this way, in related to what I had just said, that the new creative work of God in resurrection, resurrecting sinners will result in a reconciled humanity where Jew and Gentile are on equal footing before God. And this new humanity will constitute a new temple, a new dwelling place of God's glory. It is this message That has actually, Paul concludes rightfully that has put him in chains on the behalf of the Gentiles or for the sake of the Gentiles. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He wants them to know that this message that he has brought to them has cost him Comfort in life. It's cost him autonomy of location. He writes to them in chains. He's under under the custody and guard of the Roman Empire. And yet, he's not a prisoner of Caesar. He says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord that as we see God's providential working in our life... We may recognize that even things that constrain us and put us in places we had not intended, we see that it is the hand of the Lord that moves. But in Paul, the hand of the Lord moved in a very specific and unique way. Let's look uh, for ourselves at this historical context and turn with me to Acts chapter 21. This comes after Paul had spent time in Ephesus. He had uh, gone on a missionary journey and he's sailing and he and he comes to Jerusalem in verse 15. It says after these days we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. And in verse 19, it says that he greets these disciples from Caesarea. And he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so they instruct him that he should go and, and make a vow, and he should consecrate himself and, pu- and go through a ritual thing of purification. He does so on their behalf, he does so uh, for their sake. And after doing so, we read in verse 27, that when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and lay hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And we got to the stairs. He was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. What we find is he enters into a line of questioning before this guard. He reveals to himself to be a Roman citizen And he appeals his right to have to appear before Caesar. Later, he was taken to Caesarea. He was tried and granted an appeal to Caesar in Acts 24 and 25, which resulted in his imprisonment in Rome in Acts 27 and 28. Thus, his Roman incarceration was the result of his mission to the Gentiles. So Paul says to these Gentile Christians that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of them. He does not associate his imprisonment to the schemes of man or the workings of the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem or even to the authority of man but to the divine design of his servitude. His imprisonment was a tool in the Lord's hand. What Paul saw before the Gentiles was his imprisonment had brought him to uh, where he intended to go, where his desires had led him to Rome. And so his imprisonment was a tool in the Lord's hand. And now, as we eventually will get to verse 13, he doesn't want these Gentile Christians to lose heart for his tribulations which is on their behalf for they are your glory as he says to them paul has other insight to his situation he not only sees himself as a prisoner of christ jesus in this historical context he sees himself as a steward He he identifies himself as a steward, which locates his responsibility as administrative rather than executive. A steward serves at the pleasure of the master, administering according to the master's desires. The historical context of Paul's conversion and Christ's given mission to be a herald to the Gentiles which through chains takes him all the way to Rome. Paul wants them to understand that the Lord was working in his, in his life. To bring glory to himself. And specifically in, in the redemptive story of God. The glory here is that the, Gentile, the Gentiles would be included in the church. They would, they would be brought in. And brought in on equal footing before God. This was the scandal of the Jewish of the of the gospel to the Gentiles. That they wouldn't come in and and be subservient to the law of Moses, but they would come in and that they would see in Christ all has been fulfilled. Well, he goes on beyond this historical context of the message is is he gives more now context to that message he heralds by giving them a biblical theological context of this message he says in uh, the first part of verse three he says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as i wrote before in brief he says, by revelation, there was made known to me. Revelation, he, he speaks about here, there was a revealing, there was a progression of God's revelation taking place in the uh, story of redemption in Scripture. Such that he would speak from God. He would be able to say in, in other letters that, That the Christians were obeying his words, not his words of men, but his words from God. Paul was seeing his place in redemptive history. This idea of revelation is in the first part of verse 3. He he, he introduces it in verse 3 and then defines what he means in verse 5. He says in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. This idea of revelation is defined by one commentator. He says it is a secret plan hidden in God, which cannot be unraveled or understood by human ingenuity or study. It is unveiled by God and by God alone. We may be asking ourselves, as Paul uh, saying that he's that there was no light in previous revelation. No, not at all. He just, in verse 2, he went through how he was alluding to and in other places co- directly quoting Old Testament scripture whereby he sees in Christ the fulfillment of what was promised. But he recognizes that at the arrival of Christ, something new has taken place. That a new epoch of God's revelation has started. And with, com- with that coming would, would infer new Recorded revelation to be recorded and kept, new scriptures to be written. So, the secret plan hidden in God he refers to as a mystery of Christ. What was the material cause of this revelation? What was it made of? Well, Jesus Christ himself. It's a mystery. Of Christ. It's by, it's it's being revealed by his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He says again, uh, referencing uh, the mystery of Christ again and again in this passage. He's pointing to the, the material cause of this revelation was Christ himself. Not only is life, death and resurrection the historical reality of his coming and what he had accomplished, but the implications of his historical appearing and the implications of his teaching so that we would never separate Christ's teaching and Paul's teaching in some bifurcated way that that Paul and the apostles, they just run with it and they take it way beyond Christ's. Intention. Here, what Paul is referring to, is, or implying, is that this revelation that was made known to him is now written down. He says, I wrote to you in brief, and, and we can see that connection to the end of chapter 2, the, the brief idea of what he speaks about, that Jew and Gentile are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That this was an implication of what Christ was saying. The implication of Christ's resurrection is the establishing of a new temple. Tear this temple down and I will rebuild it again in three days, Christ said. And then we have Christ teaching himself of the apostles there at the beginning of Acts where he says you're going to go into all the world. You're going to take this message. Christ proclaims authority has been given to him at the end of Matthew's gospel. The material cause of this revelation was Jesus Christ himself, but it's not only his historical appearing, but it was the implications of it and the implications of his teaching and this movement of redemptive history produces the grounds for new revelation, new scriptures to be penned. There would have been anticipation that God would then again speak through men. And specifically that Christ would continue to speak. Now through his apostles and prophets. Scripture testifies this as much in Hebrews chapter 1. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Hebrews chapter 1 makes no mention of holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. It makes mes- mention that in these last days. God has spoken to us in His Son. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes here that there was a revelation given to him as Christ revealed Himself to him. And the implication was is that God would raise up men to write on His behalf. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from heaven, from, from honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter testifies to the historical reality of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It happened. It happened this way. But then he tells them there's, there's even something more sure than having that direct revelation from Christ and from the Father on the mountain. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to the witch They were writing and they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write of the implications of this historical reality. History and doctrine. Christ's coming implies new revelation. It implies the furtherance of Christian doctrine. The mystery would not remain veiled, but the mystery would be unveiled in Christ. Paul moves on and he identifies who who is operative in this. Peter had just said it, but Paul also says it here in Ephesians 3. In the operative context, he says at the end of verse 5, he says, And it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He further says about himself of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Michael Allen observes that he attributes all progress to the agency of the triune God of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He observes that that the repetition is jarring the gift, grace, and given. They all commend this notion of God's provision in overlapping and emphatic ways. What we see is all three of these words imply reception. You receive a gift. Something was given to Paul. Paul. That there was grace. We know grace is is something to be received. And now according to the working of his power. There's reception implied there. That the operative is not Paul ultimately. The operative is the spirit of God working through the historical revelation of Christ. To reveal the mystery of Christ. In previous revelation. So that they don't, they don't just cut the Jewish scriptures off and say, okay, we're going for a clean start here. No, Paul says, here is the spirit at work. Here, here I am receiving all these things for their behalf so that they would be encouraged in both the Jewish scriptures and the new scriptures being penned by Paul himself. Another theologian observes he says so by God's grace he was made a minister and by God's enabling power he was able to carry out the ministry God does not give responsibility without the provision of his enabling power to carry it out carry it out in the end God is to be praised for people can neither initiate nor accomplish God's work by their own energy or efforts I want us to pay attention here to the presence of the spirit, the working and power of the spirit as we recognize it in the revelation of the mystery of Christ, as Paul is referring to it here. We must recognize the work of God, that it's going on, the even work of God necessary for us to initiate or accomplish God's work. It's not done by our own energy or efforts. Paul is establishing that the context of his rejoicing is found in the providential work of God in history. The redemptive work of God in Revelation and the operative work of God in the Spirit. It's with these, this foundation that we can now think and apply and revisit this idea of hearing God. There are only two kinds of revelation we are told about in Scripture. Two kinds of revelation that we are told about. Natural revelation and special revelation. That which is revealed or what can be known through the light of nature. And what can only be known through the light of God's supernatural unveiling. We recognize that we see in scripture and we read in scripture, people talking about hearing God, a a vision being given to them from God. We also recognize that it is by that that those things were recorded. Those things were written down for our benefit and our instruction. Psalm 19 is a helpful summary of this. In verse 1, Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And then in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We have the heavens telling, or as I've always Memorized it the heavens declaring the glory of God, and we have the law of the Lord. the special revelation of God is perfect, and it restores the soul. We don't go into nature to be restored in our soul. we don't look upon the beauty and expanse of god's world and the expanse of the celestial heavens. And be restored in soul. We come to his word, made effective and alive by the Spirit of God, to be restored. We come to the special revelation of God to do so. The one given to proclaim his existence, power, and being, and the other to establish and govern the church having the complete special revelation of God we conclude with the Spirit's testimony of it in 2 Timothy 3 all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work and as to its completion, I remind us of the words in Hebrews 1. that it says, in many ways, and long ago, God spoke to us, spoke to the fathers and prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. This is a, a period statement on the, revel- on the special revelation of God. It's with this that we affirm the conclusion of our confession in chapter 1, paragraph 1. It opens with these words. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, which we... Usually, affirm any everybody would affirm that, but it also brings in obedience that which you're you are to do. It closes that paragraph by saying, Which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. We have many well-intended brothers and sisters, I'm sure, who seek to hear a word from the Lord, who seek a a special impression, who who want to hear, uh, to have an inclination, God nudging them in a direction. Brothers and sisters, I would warn you of adopting that view yourself. When we seek to hear from God outside of his infallible, inerrant word, we cut against these two principles. The sufficiency of scripture and the necessity of scripture. What do you need to know that isn't contained in Scripture that the Holy Spirit overlooked in moving the biblical authors to write down every necessary word? What do you need to know as it relates to saving knowledge, faith, and obedience that isn't already recorded in Scripture? If we go to God to find specific direction... To seek to hear from him specifically about such and such. We make him nothing but a divination. Where you're divining things out of sense and sensory. As opposed to engaging your mind in scripture. Letting it rest upon your inclinations. Your wills. And your intellect. So that you would then make a decision that would not be in contrast or in against, against the will of God. That you would look upon the circumstances of your life and see if God is demanding you to do such and such a thing. If the demands of God are requiring it. And finally, that you would look in your, your conscience as it's informed by Scripture and see that you would not sin against it. Brothers and sisters, Scripture is sufficient for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. If you want to hear from the Lord, as they say, read the Bible out loud. I, I, I would say that even in my own life, I know that if I understood Scripture better, if I, if I, if I maybe digested more of it, Oh, how sure, more sure of our decisions we would be. They would not be perfect decisions. They would not be without trial and tribulation. But we know very well that the Lord leads and guides us and grows us by those things. What do you need to know that isn't contained in Scripture that the Holy Spirit overlooked in moving the biblical authors to write down every necessary word Many accuse such a stance as limiting the spirit of God. Some have even said that the church has become God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Scriptures. And they claim that we are cutting out the Holy Spirit by holding to the sufficiency of Scripture. But I say in the reading of Scripture... By the one who possesses the spirit of God. The spirit is ablaze making alive and active the word of God. Remember what Paul speaks of the operative context of his prayers is the spirit of God. The spirit operative in the revelation of Christ revealing the mystery of Christ to us. Oh, those that hold to the sufficiency of Scripture would see the spirit ablaze at even bringing them to Scripture to read it and to desire to read it. The the necessity of Scripture is a little more subtle. What do you need to know that would be necessary for your life? that can't be accessed by diligent study of God's special revelation as I said some people wait for an inner peace or an impulse or a nudge brothers and sisters let us know what we mean when we say God has given me peace about this decision what peace are you seeking Make sure you're able to define that biblically, as informed by God's word, and not mystically. For that might be a satisfied stomach from a good meal. I find peace often after a good meal, I find peace after a good nap. But if we're talking about the peace that surpasses understanding, let us have peace to know that we walk not in opposition to the will of God. We walk not in opposition to what God demands or our conscience. And so be at peace, knowing that come what may, the Lord is sovereign. I've heard of testimonies of people questioning whether or not they heard God right when they go and they experience trial. And tribulation wherever they go or whatever they did and I would say well I don't think you heard God right because you weren't hearing God but if you think he made a mistake by those trials and tribulations then there's you have much more to learn about who God is what happens when we wait for these things well we make scripture. Secondary at best. What use is scripture if you only need peace or a nudge or a whisper or to hear God's voice? What use and necessity of scripture is it? Scripture would become secondary at best. Let us not forget the Belgic Confession. 1651. Article 7 asserts, for all human beings are liars by nature. Article 7 is the sufficiency of Scripture, by the way. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule. This infallible rule of the sufficiency of Scripture. What does scripture reveal in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick? Who can understand it? I don't have its place, but John Owen is is known to have said or written. If private revelations agree with scripture, they are needless for we have scripture. And if they disagree, they are false let us see what God was doing in specially revealing to Paul what was made known that this mystery of Christ was given to his apostles and spirits to reveal to his church for their complete edification so that we would not look or listen for new special revelation from God. But look to Christ our Lord, who is the Word made flesh, and who has been revealed in His Word and by His words in Scripture. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks this morning that even as we pray, the Spirit of God is interceding, saying things that we cannot express. For, Lord, you know our estate. You know we are but animated dust. And who is man, O Lord, that you would think of them? And yet we have the testimony of the incarnation, of the humility and sufferings of our Savior. And as we look at our present sufferings, we have hope in his present and subsequent glories. We thank you for your written word. We thank you for its revelation of the mysteries of Christ. O oh Lord, may we be enlivened by your spirit to take hold of it. And to do all things as unto the Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.